If you are a guest here today, I would like to introduce myself. My name is Travis Fleming. I am the teaching pastor here. And uh, if you have a Bible, that's great. If you don't, I would encourage you just to listen and follow along as we do go through this. We begin our new series entitled Empty. And it's talking about how the empty tomb of Jesus Christ changed everything. I mean, it set the world on end. Death as we know it now goes backwards. Everything is transformed. Everything that we go through in life, everything that we deal with, is now going to be seen through the lens of the resurrection. But we know that life right now isn't as it should be. As Pastor Andrew was sharing today, Jesus is on the throne, but yet sometimes we don't realize that. I mean, we know we experience pain on a daily basis. We experience sorrow. Some of you right now I know are going through really difficult times. I mean, it could be a job loss. It could be dealing with a very difficult relationship. It could be dealing with a certain medical report. It could be dealing with a classmate or a situation at your work, and you feel sorrow. Now, I don't mean to trivialize your pain or sorrow, and I don't think the Bible trivializes sorrow. Matter of fact, the Bible is, is intensely real when we deal and look at sorrow and pain and suffering. But we're going to see today, we're going to see how to hopefully look at our sorrow through the lens of Christ's resurrection to see how it changes us in the here and now. How we are to look at life. How we can say, in essence, sayonara to sorrow. But I would encourage you to turn with me, if you have a Bible, as I mentioned before, to the book of John, which is in the New Testament. If you're not that all familiar with your Bible, just go to the table of contents in the beginning and you will find your way. But we are in John chapter 20, and I'm going to be reading from verse 11 through verse 18. And I'll be referring back to some preceding verses as we look at this individual named Mary Magdalene who had to deal with sorrow, but how she was transformed after interacting with a risen Christ. Now, it's our custom and our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's Word. So I would ask you to please stand with me as we read the words of our Lord. Within his word. John chapter 20, verse 11. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today asking you to show us how the resurrection applies to our daily lives, how we might see the reality of this truth and live our lives in light of it. Lord, I pray for those who are in deep, abject sorrow right now, that are suffering that are dealing with some very difficult and disastrous situations. Lord, they're tempted to despair. I pray that you show yourself to be their hope. That you are the sovereign God who's victorious over over death 
and sin and Satan himself. So glorify yourself in our midst today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For Mary, it was a very difficult time. We don't know a lot about Mary. There's a lot of different things out there. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the Scripture or a lot of the characters within Scripture. But Mary Magdalene is one of the most written about characters in all of the Bible, but not in the Bible. Many different what we call apocryphal books or uh, spurious things have been written about her. A lot of, uh, she's been um, represented in a lot of works of fiction and contemporary fiction, such as Dan Brown's the, uh, the Da Vinci Code. She's referenced in there. There's all this confusion surrounding her. People have theorized different things about her. But all of those things aren't true. What we must do is go to the Scripture and the Scripture alone to see what does the Bible say about Mary Magdalene and Mary Magdalene, how she deals with sorrow. She's one of the very few women that are represented in Scripture, and she has given the honor of being the first eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection, which is amazing. Because within the ancient world, women were considered to have no testimony whatsoever. They couldn't be witnesses in court. They, they were considered to be a little bit inferior. But see, here we see God exalting women in a pretty phenomenal way. That He gives this woman the luxury, the honor of being the first eyewitness to the risen Lord. Now, if we were to read a little bit before this, we would see that she was a devotee of Jesus. We learn from the book of Luke that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. Now we don't talk about a lot about possession very often, but it's a horrid thing and it's real. Satan can possess individuals. We see this happening different times within scripture and Jesus freeing different people that are demonically possessed. And it says this woman was possessed by seven different demons. Now, we don't know exactly how that manifested itself, whether it was because of a sin that she had done. When we continually give ourselves over to sin, we are opening the door for Satan to step into our life and take control in a variety of different ways. So we don't know if it was a sin that she did or had something done to her. But whatever the case may be, there was a door that was made available where Satan came into her. And we don't know exactly, again, how it manifested itself. I mean, I think of a plurality of these demons that are there. I think of the, the uh, demoniacs, we call him, the man who was demon-possessed at Gerasenes, when Jesus meets him. I don't know if you are familiar with the story in Mark chapter 8, but it's, it's a very horrible story. They had this de- man who is demon-possessed, that he is so bad that no ropes can hold him. Matter of fact, they try to chain him. This guy was crying out day and night. The people of the community just put him on the outskirts, and that's where he goes. He's hanging out, and he spends his time in, this, in the, the cemetery, undoubtedly scaring the villagers nearby. I can imagine hearing his moans and groans late at night as children woke up and wanted to know, what's that sound, Mommy? What's that sound, Daddy? And this guy would cry out day and night. Not even chains could hold him because he had supernatural strength. And he's also running naked and dirty. And then Jesus shows up. And he confronts him. And this, this demonically inhabited, this possessed man comes up to Jesus. And Jesus says, what is your name? He finds out that his name is Legion, which means that there are many different demons in him. And Jesus, gets, Jesus cast them out to a herd of swine, about 2,000 of them, that immediately make their way to a cliff and then go off the embankment into the water and drown. So that's, what, that's how the demons manifested themselves in this man. We have no idea what it did to Mary Magdalene. 
But if you, you read the text in Mark chapter 8, we see that after he, this man was freed from his demons, it says that people, it freaked out the villagers after they saw him because he was clothed and in his right mind. He was transformed. And it would bewildered them. Matter of fact, it scared the villagers. I mean, they were already scared of him beforehand, but now they encountered a power greater than that was under his influence, that influenced him. And they were even more fearful. So fearful were they that they begged Jesus to leave their region. They freaked, he freaked them out. They begged him to leave. Now, one wonders how it came in Mary Magdalene's, Magdalene's life. We just know that seven demons were removed from her. But I'm sure that, sure that the, the description given to the demoniac in Mark chapter 8 is the same that was given to Jesus in that she was clothed and in her right mind. And she became a servant of Jesus, not only of Jesus, but of the other apostles. Matter of fact, there were a few other women that were considered to be servants that traveled with the disciples. We don't hear much about them. Luke chapter 8 gives us a glimpse into these women. One was named Joanna. Another is uh, another woman. Uh, it's not Kutzba, but it's uh, something along that line. And she's a servant of Herod's household. And they are traveling with the apostles, attending to their needs. And Mary Magdalene is probably the greatest devotee out of all those three ladies. She is given the privilege of witnessing his crucifixion, also being a part of his, or witnessing his burial, and then she is the first to see his resurrection. But before she witnesses the resurrection, can you imagine the sorrow that was in her heart? The pain that she felt? I mean, here was a woman that was hopeless, that was lost, that had nothing. And then Jesus comes into her life and transforms her. He transforms her life. He removes these demons from her. No longer is she chained to them, but she is, in essence, clothed in her right mind, a servant of the Most High God. He was her hope. He was her reason for being. I mean, she put everything behind Him. You know, I think if today we have a lot of people that we like to exalt, celebrities, athletes, politicians, and no sooner as they are in that exalted position, they promise us the world, we discover that they have feet of clay. Now, I don't mean to, to throw stones, but I'm looking at our, our president right now. I mean, a lot of people, when he was elected, they looked at him as the hope. And there have been many that have been disappointed. That hoped in him. Not those who were against him, but those who were for him initially. Because they found out he's all too human. He's a man, like anybody else. And some were disappointed. I was reading some political commentaries yesterday from people that really were behind his presidency, but now have grown to be frustrated by him. And see, I'm sure Mary, she was wondering, she thought that Jesus, He was the coming Messiah. He was the one who was to rule, to restore the kingdom. But then He met this grotesque, horrible death of capital punishment. It was, it was beyond her ability to fathom. Her sorrow would have been immense, as were the other apostles and the, the, the disciples that were there. Can you imagine the pain that they felt? I mean, not only did Jesus die and hope die with Him, but now they themselves were scared. Matter of fact, we're going to see in the next couple of weeks how the disciples were so afraid they were hiding in the upper room after Jesus' crucifixion because they were afraid that the Jewish or Roman authorities were going to make their way to them and take them out just as they did with Jesus. It was pretty unfathomable for her. And she, she gets up early in the morning. We read it at, at the beginning of John chapter 20. We also see that there are other Gospels that offer us bits, tidbits, glimpses into what happened. It was early morning, still dark outside. You know those days when the light's just starting to dim and you're starting to make things out. You haven't had your cup of coffee yet and you're starting to feel it. This is early. And she's, she, though, had been crying, I imagine, for the last few days. 
from the time that she found out that Jesus was arrested, she saw him on the cross, and then to see him go into the tomb. I imagine her face. Now, I, you know, I, I'm married to a woman, so I know that when you when you uh, when you cry, what happens to your face? It gets puffy. I'm sure that she had no tears left. Her face was puffy. She didn't know what else to cry to do. And it says, and we learn from the other gospels that. There are other women with her. John only records Mary just because John's trying to highlight a certain thing for his purpose. Uh, But the other Gospels reveal that there are other women with her and they made their way to the tomb to anoint the body. And they were debating amongst themselves who's going to roll the stone away. It was a very large stone. And they get there and they see that he's not there. And they're amazed. I mean, she's in some ways they're frightened. And they hear the angels report, He is not here, He is risen. But go tell, go ahead to Peter and Galilee and say that the Lord is coming before you, as Mark records uh, in his uh, resurrection account. So these women make their way. She makes her way to John and Peter. We know that they run back. I mean, they sprint to go see it. John and Peter are there. Peter goes in. He examines the, the, linen, the, the, the burial uh, linens. He doesn't know what to think of it. John is amazed as well. And they both return home. And Mary just stays there. Matter of fact, we saw there that she stood there weeping outside the tomb. She's just overwhelmed by sorrow. Matter of fact, we don't even capture the essence of this in English. It just says sorrow. She wept. or She was weeping. In Greek, the word is very alive. It shows wailing. I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of death and someone that's wailing. When death has just been pronounced, I remember going to a hospital of a girl who committed suicide. She was 16 years old. I arrived. All of her friends were filled in the emergency room. They're all crying. And I walked through them. And I made my way back. They asked me to pray. Just pray at that moment in time. And I walk into the room where her lifeless body is. She has a neck brace around her. Her family members, some of her sisters are even climbing on her body, just wailing. They are just in disbelief that she is gone. So I start to pray when the grandmother, her grandmother walks in and she had just found out. And I start to pray and I I didn't know what to do. I'm just trying to offer hope. At this moment, I don't believe that this girl was walking with, she had no relationship that I'm aware of. Uh, of knowing Jesus Christ. And what began to occur next was just unfathomable. As I prayed, the grandmother starts shouting at me, saying, she's not dead! She just couldn't accept the fact. She's crying out, telling, shut up, shut up, she's not dead! And everybody around that just causes the tears to flow even more. You hear the cries and the sobs and just the sorrow that covers the room like this horrible, filthy blanket. It was an awful, awful day to experience such sorrow. One wonders what Mary was feeling. That her hope was lying there in the tomb. She was just overwhelmed by sorrow. Now before we go further on in examining the, why she was sorrowful, I, I think it, it is best for us to learn... What are the different reasons that we might have to be sorrowful? Because we, we have a lot of different ways. And I'm going to give you a list right here. And this is a list that is by no means exhaustive. But I'd like us to look for a moment to pause before we get further into our text and look at the reasons uh, that cause us 
sorrow. The reasons that cause us sorrow. Well, we have the first one is this. Simply difficulties. Going through difficulties. Have you ever been uh, going through a, a, a really difficult time right now? It might be in your job. It might be with a coworker. It could be in your marriage. It could be with your children. We all experience times of difficulties. It's inevitable. If you belong to the race of Adam and Eve, you're going to experience difficulties and pain. They make their mark on us. They can bring us down and create sorrow in our hearts. Another reason for, dis, uh, for our sorrow is disappointment. I know many of us have been through times of disappointment. We, we all have. We, were, we went in expecting one thing and got something far less. Maybe you were expecting a new job, a promotion, or a raise, but you were disappointed when all fell through. Maybe, maybe the ultrasound gave one thing, and then when the child arrived, he wasn't or she wasn't how you expected them to be. I mean, we, we go through disappointment. We go through despair. We, we, we try to deal with all of these, this flood of emotions that come over us. I mean, not only do we have difficulties and disappointments, but we, we all know what it's like to feel despair. We've tried and tried and hope seems lost and there seems no way out. That's one of the worst places to be. I don't know if you've ever spoken to someone who is truly in desperation or just despair. It's one of the most difficult things to do because no matter what you say, there's no hope for them. I had another man that uh, committed suicide several years ago. And I remember sitting back with him. He would come into the church. We had an evening service. And he, he would just sit there. And no matter what we said to him, he just said, no, no, no. He, he just had no hope whatsoever. He refused to believe the truths that we were giving him that eventually led to him taking his own life. But those are some of the darkest days dealing with people that are just in abject and horrid despair. And lastly, we see probably the biggest cause for sorrow is death. Death. We've all been there. You've been to the funeral home. You've made your way up the line. You've seen that casket staring before you and that lifeless body there. As tears stream down your face and fall upon the face of your loved one, you realize that person is gone. Their skin is cold and clammy. You see that they... They, aren't, they don't look the way that they did when they were alive. You can see sometimes the hints of makeup that are on them. This very strange look by their mouth that is there. The body, that the person as we know it is gone. And we feel sorrow within our hearts. Never will we hear that person laugh again. Never will we be able to, to feel their embrace. To hear that joke to see that glance, to experience their touch. Never again will we go through that. And sorrow overwhelms us as we think about death. Death is the great leveler of each one of us. doesn't matter if you're wealthy, if you're poor. doesn't matter if what your station is in life or what you have accomplished or failed to accomplish. Death puts us all on the same plane. I was reading about a billionaire recently who, is, who has his goal now to live to 120 years old. He has changed every aspect. He has even um, paid for wings of universities to talk about the benefits of nutrition and exercise. And you know, no matter what we do, we can't, affect our, can't change our genes. And see, the genes that we all have come from Adam and Eve, which show that we're going to die one day. I think of Jack LaLanne. Remember that guy? Jack LaLanne loved that guy. 
I mean, this guy was pulling boats with his mouth, or, you know, when he, like 80 years old. I don't know if you saw this guy. I mean, he was, Mr. he was on television for so many years, this really fit and robust man and all the commercials, and he was always positive. But even Jack LaLanne, after all of his years of exercise, I mean, he was still working out two hours a day, lifting weights in, well into his 90s. I mean, amazing guy. But you know what? Even he can't change his genes. And he passed away at 95 years of age just last year, the year before. No matter what we do, we can't change that. Death is what every one of us have to deal with because of sin that each one of us possess. Because we were not only born into sin that we had inherited from our parents, but we also choose to sin. So we all deal with death. And the sorrow that comes with it can overflood, just overwhelm us, flood us. For Mary... Hope was dead and buried in the tomb. And it's amazing as we look at her, the sorrow in her life, what it did to her. I'd like us to look at our text, if you, if you have a Bible in front of you, to look, uh, look at verse 10. We saw that Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, returned home. But she stays weeping outside. In verse 11, that's what we see, that she has stayed outside. Verse 11, But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped, to look into the tomb. Now, remember, James, or Peter and John left, but she doesn't leave. She stays there. She doesn't even go to the tomb. She's just, I imagine, numb. What's going on? See, what sorrow does to us is it paralyzes us. That's the first little point that I'd like you to, to write down there. Sorrow can be so overwhelming that it paralyzes us. Have you ever felt that way, where you just didn't want to get out of bed in the morning? That you did not want to go to work? That you didn't want to do anything? I mean, after the day after the report that someone had died, what did you want to do? You didn't want to do anything. You just wanted to close your eyes and forget about everything else. I think of C.S. Lewis uh, in his book, A Grief Observed, that he wrote immediately after his wife died. If you want to read a book that talks about grief, that captures the essence of it, that doesn't gloss it over, read that book. It's really short. Matter of fact, he, when he wrote the book, he didn't even publish it under his name because he was so afraid of everything that it said because he was really questioning God. He didn't just put on a happy face. He wanted to know, where is God in the middle of all this? And he talked about how painful it was was for him, he says this, he goes, no one ever told me about the laziness of grief, except at my job where the machine seems to run on as much as usual, I loathe the slightest effort, not only writing, but even reading a letter is too much, even shaving, what does it matter now whether my cheek is rough or smooth, they say an unhappy man wants distractions, something to take him out of himself, only as a dog-tired man wants an extra blanket on a cold night. He'd rather lie there shivering than get up and find one. It's easy to see why the lonely become untidy, finally dirty and disgusting. Because see, sorrow can paralyze us. Whether it's in the face of, uh, face of death, great illness, disappointment, it can stifle the most vigorous servant of Jesus Christ. But sorrow can do so much more. It can also not only paralyze us, but it can affect our perspective. It affects our perspective. Look at verse 11 with me. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. 
And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Okay, angels. She sees angels. And all she, I mean, I, I, don't, know, I don't know if I've ever seen an angel. I mean, sometimes angels look a lot like us. I think of Abraham when he had the three visitors appear to him. One was the, uh, what we call a pre-incarnate Christ, God himself in flesh. And then we have these two angels that are with him. I mean, and Hebrews talks about entertaining angels and aware that we may not be familiar with them. We don't know. John says that they were angels, so undoubtedly she might have seen that they were angels, but she can't even see that they're angels. Matter of fact, she turns around from them when she, she looks and she thinks she sees Jesus, but she thinks he's the gardener. I mean, she can't even see who Jesus is. Now, her perspective is, is so stifled by her sorrow. And as, as Lewis said, it's hard to see clearly when your eyes are full of tears. And she is just overwhelmed by sorrow. And undoubtedly, she wasn't ex- and expecting to see the resurrection. She wasn't expecting to see him rise from the dead. I mean, who does that? I mean, she wasn't a criminal investigator, a crime scene investigator. She wasn't a coroner. But undoubtedly, she knew he was dead. So she wasn't expecting him to rise from the dead, much less be in this glorified state. I mean, he still bared the marks of, his, of our redemption, the, 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 uh, the nail marks on his hands and his feet and his side that had been pierced. But other than that, he was fully restored, powerful. And she says, tell, tell me, where, where is he? She couldn't even see him. See, it affects our perspective. And that's what happens when sorrow comes over us. It feels like a tsunami. It devastates our lives. And we can't see God anywhere in the near of it. We're too busy like Peter. Remember when Peter was walking on water? He saw Jesus and he said, Lord, if it's you, tell, you know, tell me to come to you. I don't want to walk. He, I, he wanted to walk on water in essence. And as he is walking on water, what happens? He starts to look at the waves. He starts to freak out. He takes his eye off Jesus and he starts to sink. See, that's what happens to many of us. Our perspective becomes skewed because we take our eyes off Jesus. We look at the circumstances around us piling up. I have my job and my boss breathing down my neck. I have my coworker that's trying to stab me in the back. I got this health report that says that I have six months to live. My child is just in complete and total rebellion. And we don't see God in the middle of any of it. But God is there. And He's not silent. He's there. He's sovereign over all creation. He's there, but he's, he's coming alongside us. Lewis also talked about in A Grief Observed, he says, it's the times that I cry out the most that I feel like God's there the least, but there are other times that I look up and I feel like he's saying, shh, you don't understand yet. Shh, child, you don't understand yet. I mean, this sorrow that she was experiencing just affected her, her perspective. But not only did it affect her perspective, but it also affected her pursuit. Her pursuit. What was she looking for? I mean, it was something that was good. She wanted the body of Jesus. She even told the gar- Jesus, who she thought was the gardener, tell me where you've laid him. I, I, I want to find his body. I want to find his body. It was a good thing that she wanted to do. It was a good thing. But it wasn't the best thing. She wasn't looking at it through the eyes of faith. In the eyes of Scripture. 
See, one of my favorite movies, by the way, I don't know if you've ever seen this, National Treasure. Ever seen that movie? Great movie. Great movie with Nicolas Cage. Like that movie. Good, clean movie. And what I like, one of the cool parts of it is when they get the Declaration of Independence, and they're in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, and they got the glasses that Benjamin Franklin had designed to see the back of the Declaration of Independence. It revealed this map, the greatest treasure map in all of history. And they put on the, the glasses to see, and he sees it. He sees it very well. I mean, he sees where everything is going to be, and it's, and it's a pretty amazing scene. But it, it's interesting, later, after he gets arrested, and the, he's explaining to uh, Harvey Keitel's character uh, everything that's going on, and he's kind of in disbelief, and he looks down and he sees the glasses again. And Harvey Keitel's character is moving the lens of it, and he realizes that there was more on the map that he didn't see before. See, he was looking through only one lens, not both. And when he looked at both lenses together later, he could see clearly the map in its entirety. He saw a portion of it before when he was looking through one lens, but it was when he was looking through both lenses that everything made sense. See, if Mary would have looked at, the, looked at life through the crucifixion and the resurrection, it would have made complete sense. Now, we have the luxury of doing that now. But see, many of us, we just look at the crucifixion. We don't see the hope of resurrection. Because resurrection is God's validation for all of His promises that He has given unto us. Every statement that Jesus said is ended now with an exclamation point after the resurrection. See, before, what Jesus said, I mean, if, if He just would have ended in the tomb, it would have been a good teacher dying. That's it. It wouldn't have inspired the devotion of the apostles. I mean, when he rose from the dead, everything changed. It was a game changer. Life itself had changed. Because before, we feared more than anything else, death. Death, but no longer do we have to fear death. Because Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death itself. We don't have to fear it any longer. I mean, that's an amazing thing. We don't have to be afraid anymore to die. Why? Because we enter into the presence of Jesus. And where we, we have the right hand of God, our pleasures forevermore. That death itself is gone. Pain and sorrow are gone. As Revelation says, that He will take and wipe away all of our tears. Or the book of Isaiah chapter 35, or again in Isaiah chapter 51, when it talks about entering into the presence of God, that sorrow and mourning will flee away. There will be everlasting joy. There's not going to be boredom. It'll be everlasting joy. It will never be exhausted. We can't possibly fathom eternity and what it's going to be like and how joyous it's going to be. It's greater than any of the greatest pleasures we've ever experienced in life. And it endures and gets greater and greater and greater and greater and more and more and more. And it never ends. You never get bored in heaven. It doesn't exist. None of that happens in glory. Not at all. See, many of us, though, are too busy. We can't see through the twin lenses of crucifixion and resurrection. We just look through the lens of flesh. And we're too busy, like Mary was, pursuing things that are good, but not pursuing what's best. We have to pursue what is best. What God has for us. And we can try to cover up our sorrow in a lot of good things. I mean, it could be in our job. It could be success in our job. It could be in our children or our grandchildren. It could be in our spouse. It could be in any of our hobbies. I've met many a Christian who does that. They seek to find solace in their hobbies or other things rather than God Himself. I mean, you can even do that in ministry. 
I mean, I've met a lot of different believers that say, I'm doing the ministry, I'm doing ministry. But they're not giving their heart to God. See, nothing can substitute us going to God. We must make sure that we have the right priorities in our pursuits. Pursuing the risen Christ. Not just pursuing these good things. And like I said before, it could be anything. It could be sports. It could be our kids. It could be their success. It could be their education. These are good things. But if we have not communicated to them the risen Savior and their hope in Christ, and that is the greatest priority of their life, we have failed as parents. It's King David. I mean, King David had everything, but what did he say? One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold Him in the beauty of His temple. I mean, that was his heart's desire. He was the king. He had everything he wanted. Except the thing that he wanted most. What did he want most was God Himself. That's why we talked about some weeks ago, as we quote often the psalm, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. And we use that as a, as a, a pass for all of our, in essence, sometimes fleshly desires, or sometimes also good desires. But the reality is, so we delight ourselves in the Lord, He will give us the desires of our heart. But what's the ultimate desire of our heart that we were made for was communion and knowing God. That if we delight ourselves in God, He will give us more in Himself, which is greater than anything of these earthly desires that we have. Far greater. Far greater than any of those things. So we see that this can affect our our perspective can affect, and can also affect our pursuits and what we are looking for and living for. We must, though, see the proper response to have to sorrow. That's my next point. The proper response. And I think she shows for us the proper response that we can have to our, to our sorrow. And I would encourage you to write this down. First of all, the proper response involves this, the recognition that Jesus lives. That's the first thing. The recognition that Jesus lives. That hope is alive. As Andrew talked about earlier, that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Seated denotes completion, finished. When Jesus sat down, it meant it was done. It was finished. When he said, it is finished, in John chapter 19, when he was on the cross, one of the seven last statements that he made, he was showing that redemption is complete. I am seated. But now he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Now, I, it's, it's fascinating. I, I think I've talked about this some time ago. I went to Egypt several years ago, and I went to the uh, Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and I got to see all of the things that were found in King, uh, King Tut's tomb. I mean, King Tut actually wasn't a very good pharaoh, um, he, but the reason he gets so much press is that there was so much found about him and there weren't, uh, in essence, robbers hadn't got to his tomb. Matter of fact, he died young. He died about the age of 18 and a very horrible death. Uh, some assume after some different tests that had been done that he fell off a chariot. He broke his femur and bled out over several days in infection. I mean, it was a horrible way to die. And matter of fact, when he died, they weren't expecting him to die so fast that they had to take many of his father's treasures and put his name on it. You see it like carved over. It's like a, like a cartouche is what they call it, which is like a, a dog tag carving on the different uh, pharaoh's items. And they would bury them with him so he could have them in the afterlife. And one of the things that was discovered was his summer furniture that he would travel with. And he had this throne, which is gorgeous golden throne. But at the bottom of the throne, right in front of it, I was astonished, is this footstool. And painted on this footstool are all of these different tribes within Africa. 
that he had conquered. Showing that they were submissive to him. See, when, when it says that in the Psalms, he waits to have his enemies made his footstool to show that he, they are defeated. See, Satan has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Jesus is alive. And we must live our life in the realization of that fact. Not continuing on saying that, there, that death is the end of it. Death is not the end of it. Resurrection changed everything. That's why it makes 1 Corinthians 15 so amazing. And why that passage, probably along with Psalm 23, is the most read passage at funerals ever. Because the Apostle Paul says, if we are only to have hope in this life, we are above all men to be pitied. Because the resurrection changed that. I mean, that's the, the content. That's the, the focus of our faith, to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, I have to say, it's one of the, to our detriment, it's one of the most neglected doctrines. But it's the, the one that vindicated everything else. I think of the apostles preaching on it. The Apostle Paul preached on it pretty hardcore. To the point where he's going to the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. He's traveling around Athens. Athens was like the Boston of our day. You know, 60% of the world's leaders are educated within like, I think, a 25-mile radius of Boston. I mean, that's pretty amazing to think about. That's how Athens was in the ancient world. People would send their children to Athens to be educated. Paul's walking around. He's debating and sharing the gospel, reasoning in the synagogues. He's going out into the marketplace, and he's talking to them when some of these Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, which were the big-time heavyweights of the day, said, hey, you're bringing some new strange teaching to our ear. Can you come and talk to us about this at the Areopagus? So he gets up, and he starts preaching to them the truth of who God is. matter of fact, he uses some of their own texts to show, and their practices, to show the reality of the living God. He says, you guys even walk around and you have an inscription on one of your altars that says to the unknown God. He says, the God that was unknown to you is now known through Jesus Christ. In the times of ignorance, God now overlooked, over, then overlooked, but now He commands all nations to repent because He is the Lord of all. He, God has shown Him to be His Christ by resurrecting Him from the dead. And it says, some, some laugh because he talked about the resurrection from the dead, but others said, we will hear more from you on this. Even as he's tried before Rome, and, he, he, and the, the, the Jewish leaders are there, kind of as they were with Jesus. You know, you had Rome and the Jews working together, and one of the rare times they're working together to eradicate Christianity. And Paul, smart guy, he says, why am I on trial? I'm on trial because of the resurrection of the dead. I have a hope that God will, ri- will, will resurrect us all from the dead. I mean, that was our, that's our hope. That's how God vindicated and shown that Jesus is the Christ by that he, rising or raising Him from the dead. She recognizes Him. She says, Rabboni. She recognized that Jesus was alive again. Remember, Jesus had said to her, Mary. She knew that voice. Matter of fact, if she came out of the demonic stupor like the, the demon-possessed man did in Mark chapter 8, I, I believe that she, she, that was the first voice that she can remember hearing after coming out of it. She knew that voice. That's why she turned and she went, what? I know that voice. He said my name once before, and the last time he said my name was the beginning of the rest of my life. When those demons were gone, hope was alive, and I stared him in the face. Hope was alive. 
we must recognize that Jesus lives. We also need to recognize that or have the realization that we will experience loss. Everything is not as it should be. If you look at John chapter 20 again with me, we see something quite puzzling. In verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This is the ascension. This is another doctrine that we have, to our detriment, overlooked much. When Jesus ascended back into heaven in the book of Acts, and we see that we also learn as the angels appear, and they said in the same way He will return at His second coming. But before His ascension, He says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Do not cling to me. It's not saying don't touch me, because he invites Thomas just a few verses later to touch him, to see. The idea is carried there, and it's really hard to determine this with great accuracy. Scholars are divided, but I believe that, uh, I take this to mean that although redemption is complete, he wouldn't be staying there with her in the way she desired. He was communicating that the world is still not as it should be. She wanted him to stay there physically, but the time for that was not yet. He was the king-elect, as it were, but it was not time for his reign to be consummated. He wanted her to understand that we're still going to experience loss. We're still going to experience pain. It's inevitable in this life we're going to experience pain. I mean, Jesus, though he is ruling and reigning from heaven, his rule has not been consummated yet. It's like Lieutenant Hiro Onada. He'd been stationed at Lubang Island in the Philippines when it was overrun by U.S. forces in February 1945. Most of the Japanese troops were slain or captured, but Onada and several other men were holed up in the jungle. The others were eventually killed, but Onada held out for 29 years, living life on this island, dismissing every attempt to coax him out as a ruse. They would come and, they, they would come and drop flyers and said, the war is over. And he'd only been stationed there in December of 1944. So he said, it's impossible for the Japanese to surrender that quickly. This is a ruse by them. They're trying to to pull us out. And then even when other soldiers would come, they said, no, they're prisoners of war that have come to tell and lie to us to get us to surrender. And they, they continued that way for 29 years, refusing to believe that the war is over. You know, Satan's a little bit like that. Jesus defeated Satan on the cross. That was shown by His resurrection from the dead. But He continues to make war, refusing to believe that He's been defeated. He continues in His guerrilla warfare against us, but He is a defeated foe. Jesus is is reigning now. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So how else can we respond to sorrow in light of Jesus' resurrection? This point is not in your text for today, but it is in Scripture. We must daily be relying on the risen Lord. Daily relying on the risen Lord. We all know how quickly sorrow can come upon us like our own personal tsunami, which is why we must die to ourselves daily. We must pick up our cross, remember that we are crucified with Christ, and renew our minds. Before your feet hit the floor and they come out of bed in the morning, remind yourself of that fact. That I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. We daily have to remind ourselves that. We must take up our cross daily and be, remember that we are dead to sin and that we are alive to God. 
that we are to be renewing our minds daily. In order to deal with the sorrow that we have in our heart, we have to keep reminding ourselves of the truth. The truth of who God is and what He has done for us. Because, see, it tries to creep in every day. Every day. But we must make sure not to give, give a, a little piece for it. Like my house, uh, it's spring, obviously. And this past winter, we have a, a porch that I, we kind of cut off because it's not insulated. And uh, my wife started noticing that we had mice that had crept in. I don't know if you've ever had a mouse in your house, but when a mouse comes into my house, I declare war. I mean, I've got every poison, way too much ammunition for what I need to finish this task off. But I started realizing, though, that I can have all the traps in the world, but I've got to get it at its root. Where are they getting in? And once I found that hole, I patched it up. See, we have to find the holes of our unbelief and patch it up daily to keep unbelief from creeping in. Because, see, once unbelief starts creeping in, it starts multiplying at a rapid rate, which means we need to be in the Word daily. I find that people who quickly, most given atheism, I ask them, when's the last time you read your Bible? When did you, when did you quit reading your Bible? So we have to battle it daily. And that's through reading the Word by taking in truth, cleansing our minds with the truth of Scripture. We must live day in and day in and day in and day out in light of His resurrection. This world is not as it should be, but one day it will be. All wickedness will be judged. Justice will be vindicated and shown. And sorrow banished. We will enter into glory and everlasting joy will be upon our heads. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away, as the prophet has said. All the tears will be wiped away. So we rely on Him daily as we look forward to the day when His rule will be seen by everyone. And until that day, we do what Mary did after she saw the risen Christ. Look at verse 18 with me. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. What did she do? She went away relaying his, to others His Lordship. She's telling Him the truth of who Jesus is and that He rose from the dead, that He is the Lord of all. We must never forget that. Never lose sight of that fact. Never neglect this truth for one moment. He's the Lord of all creation. We don't talk about the kingdom of God very often to our detriment. See, Jesus preached a great deal about the coming kingdom of God and told many different parables about it. We learn a great deal about it in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, when Jesus said, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, because people were accusing him that he was Beelzebub and that he casted out demons, and he says, No, no, no. If Satan could, was divided against himself... He could not stand. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, He's reigning now. God's kingdom began to dawn at Christ's incarnation. Jews have been looking forward to His coming for millennia, but largely misunderstood His kingdom. In His incarnation, the kingdom was inaugurated. That's the beginning of His kingdom. And His second coming will be to consummate His kingdom. That's why in Luke chapter 10, verse 9-11, through 11, Jesus said, He's commanding the disciples to go out two by two, and He tells them what to do. He says, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your, of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God began at Jesus' first coming, although it won't be consummated until His second coming. 
After Jesus had sent the 72 disciples out two by two in Luke chapter 10, every town and place they were to say, for the kingdom of God has come near. Because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. That's why these people could be healed as they were. Jesus wanted all who heard and saw the signs to know that the kingdom of God was being inaugurated because it was in Him and through His disciples that the power of His kingdom would be displayed. Which is remarkable considering what happened in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus stood up and read from the scroll in Isaiah chapter 61. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Once he finished reading, he sat down and said this, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke chapter 4 verse 21. But according to Isaiah chapter 61, God sent him to do five things. He was reading this passage that said five things about God's coming Messiah. Number one, he would proclaim good news to the poor. Number two, he would proclaim liberty to the captives. Number three, give sight to the blind. In other words, healing. Number four, set at liberty those who are oppressed. And number five, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, Jesus was sent to declare the good news of God's salvation made available to both Jews and Gentiles at that moment in time. That He Himself would be the inauguration of the coming kingdom of God, bringing good news to those who were poor by the standards of this world, both figuratively and literally. And freeing those who were trapped and oppressed by sin. He was the agent and means of God's favor. No longer would men and women be trapped and condemned by God's law, but now would be beneficiaries of God's grace, Made, in and avail, made available in and through Christ. But when Jesus spoke in the synagogue that day, He was quoting from Isaiah 61, 1-2, as I just mentioned. But what most of us fail to realize is that He broke off mid-verse. He didn't finish the quote. There were other aspects to that sentence. The full verse goes like this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Why did he break off in mid-verse while reading? It's because that part of the verse was not fulfilled yet. It wasn't the time of God's day of vengeance and to comfort all who mourn, not yet. The tears won't be wiped away until glory. It wouldn't happen until his second coming. When Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, they were showing him as the fulfillment of Luke 4, 18 through 19. The kingdom of God had come near. Jesus' kingdom was just beginning and all are invited to enter into it. We must relay to others that Jesus is reigning and that He is coming again. We must preach Christ crucified, died, buried, and risen again. And it's only through the twin lens of the cross and resurrection that we can say sayonara to sorrow. We can't live life as individuals who have no hope. Because if we... Uh, if we have hope just in this life only, then we are above all men to be pitied. It's only through Christ's resurrection of the dead that we have hope. As trials and tribulations are bound to come, we are to take James' instruction to us very seriously to count it all joy. Because we know when we count it all joy, we know that God is doing something within us that we might sorrow for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That we might experience pain, but that pain is to draw us closer to Christ and realize, more importantly, 
and more in-depthly that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that we are beneficiaries and participants in His resurrection by faith in Christ. Is that your hope? Is that your, is your faith in that? Where is your hope? Are you hoping in this life only? Are you not relaying His Lordship to others? Are you just keeping it to yourself? You know, when we say we relay His Lordship, as Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch theologian, said, he goes, there's not one sphere of creation where Jesus doesn't say, mine. That He wants every part of your life. Jesus isn't just the salad dressing to our life. See, I think many people look at Jesus Christ as salad dressing. He just makes life taste a little bit better. And many of us don't even want that. We want Him on the side. Because a little bit too much will be overwhelming to us. We can't do that. We can't have Jesus as an aside. Jesus wants everything. He wants our sorrow. He wants our suffering. And He wants to use it to draw us closer to Himself. That we might become more like Him. If you think that you're not going to suffer in this life, If you come to Christ to think all my problems are going to be made better and I'm not going to have pain any longer, then you have another thing coming. Because it's through Christ that now we see the reason for our sufferings are a means of drawing us closer to Him to make us more like Him. C.S. Lewis, and I'm going to close with this thought, he worded it this way. He talked about having a spiritual house. He said that that's what it's like when God comes into our life, but he also said it's also like going to the dentist. And I know we have many people in here that work for the dentist's office. And he says this, because he said our Lord gave us a command to be perfect. Because it's in our trying to be perfect that we realize our inability to do so. But God still commands us to be perfect because we are not only to strive for it, but we are to come to Him asking, our, asking Him to transform us to make Him more like Himself. And Lewis describes this, and in the process he describes the reason for our trials and our tribulations. He says this, I find a good many people have been bothered by what I said in the last chapter about our Lord's words. Be perfect. He's quoting from uh, Mere Christianity, the chapter before. He says, some people t- seem to think this means, unless you are perfect, I will not help you. And as we cannot be perfect, then he, if he meant that, our position is hopeless. But I do not think he did mean that. I, I think he meant the only help I will give you give is help to become perfect. You may want something less, but I will give you nothing less. He said, let me explain. When I was a child, I often had a toothache. These are my, my dentist office people. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that, that night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least... Not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted an immediate relief from my pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took a mile. Now, if I may put it that way, our Lord is like the dentist. If you give him an inch, he will take a mile. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of some particular sin which they are ashamed of, which is obviously spoiling their daily life. Well, he will cure it all right, 
But he won't stop there. That may be all you asked, but if you call him, he will give you himself. He will give you the full treatment. See, Lewis's point is that God wants to do something in us beyond anything we can fathom. He will use the trials and tribulations in life to make us more like him. Lewis continues, this is, that is why we must not be surprised if we are in for a rough time, experiencing trials and tribulations and sorrow. When a man turns to Christ and seems getting on pretty well in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would be natural if things went fairly smoothly. When troubles come along, illnesses, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, he is disappointed. These things, he feels, might not have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days. But why now? Because God is forcing him up, on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he will have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It, seemed to, uh, it seems to us all unnecessary, but that is why. That is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. Hear this. I find I must borrow, yet, I must borrow another parable from George MacDonald. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God uses the wrecking ball of trials and tribulations to tear down the walls of our pride and self-sufficiency in order to do a work whereby He will receive glory. He wants to break down our spiritual little cottages in order to make His palaces. That's what God wants to do. You want to say sayonara to sayonara, then embrace the risen Christ. Rely on Him daily and start to see life through the twin lenses of the crucifixion and the resurrection because it's through the crucifixion that death and sin were paid for, the price that was demanded by God. But it's through the resurrection that we now have hope and we enter in. And we have a hope beyond this life. If you are here today and you don't know who Jesus Christ is, you haven't invited Him to be your Lord and your Savior, the Scripture is very clear that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Call out to the Lord. That's what you need to do. Repent of your sins. Abandon your self-sufficiency and pride and turn to Him and say, Lord, I am a sinner. Save me. And He will. And He will transform your life. He will demolish that little cottage and He will make you into a palace. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we say sorrow. We, we say sayonara to sorrow. Knowing that You are ruling. That You are the King. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you will come again and we will see the reality and the consummation of that rule. But until that day, though we experience tribulation, though we experience trial, though we experience sorrow and suffering, we count it all joy. Because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And the steadfastness is going to grow up in, in just gargantuan hope that we have within you. Lord, our hope is in heaven. 
We put our trust in you daily. Lord, I pray that you might show each one of us your sufficiency, that you are able to satisfy every one of our desires, that you are able to forgive the darkest and deepest sin, that you are able to work in the most dire and difficult and desperate situation. Lord, we, we pray and we ask that you transform each one of us and make us more like your Son, that you might receive honor and glory both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.